And what she was trying to tell me was that people are not going to take you seriously because you're a girl. And so get those three letters no matter what, because then you'll be able to take them and you'll be able to throw them in their face. And that's what exactly what has happened. You have no idea how many times people have been like, who are you to opine on this? Who are you to say, you know, X about Y? And I can say, because I have a PhD motherfucker. How about you? Hi, everyone. Welcome to this week's episode of Tourist Information. I'm really pleased that my guest this week, somebody I've been trying to get on for a long time, Maria Konnikova, the Russian-American writer with three fantastic books, um, Mastermind, How to Think Like Sherlock Holmes from 2013, The Confidence Game, Why We Fall for It Every Time from 2016, and most recently, The Biggest Bluff, How I Learned to Pay Attention, Master Myself, and Win, about her embarking on a poker career, Uh, maybe the best research (laughs) book of all time, even though she did so under really challenging circumstances with a parent losing a job, her husband losing a job, her grandmother died. Um, It's a fascinating book. All her stuff is fascinating. And um, this is one of those conversations that I did a fair bit of prep for because Maria is so smart and is so... uh, enmeshed in worlds that I have been fascinated by forever. And uh, I tried to do my best to utilize, you know, I only have 55 minutes talking to somebody to make the most of it. But um, I'm I'm happy with how this turned out. But it's funny, the interviews where you go in and you feel quite nervous. And uh, she was so friendly and gracious. So I hope you enjoy this week's guest, Maria Konnikova on Tourist Information. Um, I wondered if you could, if we could just start with your journey to America with your family was something that I, I think is pretty incredible. I wonder if we could just start there. Sure, sure. Um, do you want me to just kind of tell you a little bit about, um, about that? Or do you have any specific things that you wanted me to focus on? Um, I guess I wanted to just work our way to you. You arrived in America at four, right? Yep, this is correct. And, and I just thought if we could get get to your journey to Harvard and Columbia just before you embarked. Sure, on that. sure, sure, sure. Yep. Yeah. So I was born in the Soviet Union, um, and it was still the Soviet Union at the time. Um, so this was you know, before the Berlin Wall fell, when people had no idea that it was going to fall, where it was still, you know, this communist stronghold. And my family took a huge risk, um, as a lot of families did, and ended up leaving, being stripped of our citizenship. Um, You know, your passport was confiscated at the border and applying for asylum in the United States. And uh, so when we got here, I was four years old and I was miserable because I didn't know how to speak English. And I, you know, it it was a very stressful journey because for multiple months we'd lived in Europe and kind of were waiting and were living in different countries and different apartments. And then when we got here, we were hosted by another family and were living in their house. And so it was for a little kid, um, not the most pleasant experience, but I'm 
so ridiculously grateful every single day that it happened because it, I think, made me who I am and it enabled me to be who I am today. I don't think I'd be a writer. I don't think any of this would be happening had I stayed in the Soviet Union. And so that was, I think, a very lucky thing that happened when I was a kid. So we, um, we arrived in the Boston area and that's where I grew up. So I spent my childhood and my teens in the suburbs of Boston and learned how to speak English pretty quickly. So, so we got, we got that down and um, ended up staying for college and going to college at Harvard um, where I just wanted, I mean, I wanted to study everything, but I ended up studying um, psychology and creative writing fiction actually. And I was really interested in real life psychology. So I think that's a that's an interest that stayed through the present day because I wanted to apply it to political science and leadership and important decisions that leaders made. So so that's what I ended up doing in terms of the psychology angle. And I studied with Steven Pinker, um, who was a psycholinguist and also a writer. Um, people know him for his writing, but forget that he was you know, one of the most brilliant linguists of the 20th century. And I was really interested in how language shapes who we are and what we are and our decisions and how we think about things, probably because language was such an important force in my life from childhood since I had to learn English. I had to learn what it felt like to not speak a language and to not be understood. So that was, um, that's what I ended up doing in undergrad. And I'd fallen, I'd wanted to be a writer my whole life. I mean, apparently when I was, you know, six years old or so, I announced at dinner that I was going to be a writer. Um, but then I kind of killed that instinct because I started reading all of these phenomenal writers and books as I grew older. And I thought, wow, I could never do that. But that love reawakened in college. And I ended up applying to a creative writing program um, within Harvard. And they didn't accept a lot of people. And I was really nervous. So I didn't, um, I didn't tell anyone I was applying because I didn't want to tell them that I was rejected. But I got accepted. And so those, I think the my twin love of writing and, and psychology kind of goes back to my undergraduate days. Um, and then it really was not a straight line. I'd love to say, oh, and then, you know, I went to journalism school and this happened and I became a writer and, you know, end of story. Um, but my, kind of my journey was much more convoluted. Um, and I think that it probably is for a lot of people and and that's okay so i ended up i think i had like seven jobs out of college including you know i bartended i worked in an ad agency as a copywriter uh, because it had writer in the title um, copywriting is not writing <laughs> for all of those listening i was absolutely miserable um i wrote for <laughs> Was the first female em employee at a company that actually still exists that um, wrote this lifestyle newsletter for bros and telling bros how to experience New York City. I did not like that either. Um, so I, I went through a lot of different jobs until I landed in television where I stayed for a few years before grad school. 
um, which wasn't really writing in the sense that I wanted to do it either, but at least it was closer to that world, much closer than the world of advertising. Um, so that was me until I ended up going to grad school to study psychology, not because I actually wanted to be a professor or go back to academia, but to be perfectly honest, because I wanted to write. And because I had been writing in my free time, you know, nights and weekends, but I was exhausted. And my job just took everything out of me and took a lot of my creative impulses out of me. And I wanted to go back to an environment where I could be intellectually curious, stimulated, um, and have the time and the freedom to write. And that's why I ended up going to grad school. Um, And a lot of people assume that I got an MFA, but I didn't. I actually went to a PhD program. Um, It was a very conscious decision, and it came down to a very simple fact. You have to take on debt and pay to get an MFA, and you actually get paid to to have a PhD. So in my mind, it was a no-brainer. The PhD won out immediately. And I found myself at Columbia working with Walter Michelle, who is just an absolute legend who people might know as the the marshmallow guy, the person who created the famous marshmallow test. Um, you know, can you wait? Can a kid wait to eat a second marshmallow or will they eat the marshmallow in front of them? And it turns out that the amount of time that you waited correlated to all sorts of great things later on in life. Um, so delay of gratification ability. And that's who I ended up working with. And I was his final grad student. And he knew I didn't want to go into academia and actually encouraged me to write and to do other things. And I wrote my first book when I was in grad school. I actually went on a leave of absence for a semester to finish it. And that was the beginning of my professional writing career. Hmm. I wondered if you, uh, is it fair to say that you are obsessive about con artists and con men? (laughs) still something that intrigues you or have you exhausted that passion no i mean look whenever you whenever you write a book um it has to be something that really interests you because you're going to be living with it for years and really for your whole life because people will come to your books at different stages if you're lucky and so my first book was about sherlock holmes and kind of detectives and you know how to think Um, And then my second book, as you just mentioned, The Confidence Game, was about con artists. And um, I don't think I'm obsessed with either topic. You know, I I said what I set out to say. Um, Does it still interest me? Of course it does. Um, It would have been a wrong book topic if it didn't still interest me. Um, Because it is, like I said, it's something that you constantly have to live with. And people are always getting conned. And I do feel passionately about it in the sense that I wrote the book for the victims of con artists, not for the con artists. And I, because I do think that the victims are often maligned in the popular media and they're underserved and they don't have many resources to help them deal with what's happening to them. And so I, you know, I wrote the confidence game to be their voice in a, in a way and to explain what's happening and to help people understand that it could happen to anyone. It could happen to you. And it doesn't say anything bad about you. It doesn't make you, you know, stupid or greedy or any of these things. And so in that sense, I'm still very passionate about being an advocate for victims of con artists. And people still reach out to me, you know, every single week, um, 
who have either been conned themselves or had someone in their family be conned or have a situation they're dealing with. Um, and that's something that I think will continue to happen and something that I certainly am very engaged in. Do I want to write another book about some cool con artist exploit? I doubt it. You know, never say never. Um, but I, I think there are enough people who are telling stories of the con artists. I, I raised it actually to go back a little bit to Harvard just because uh, a colleague of yours at The New Yorker, David Samuels, wrote, wrote an article and, and later mm -hmm. on a book that I really enjoyed about James Hogue, who mm -hmm. the con artist who got into Princeton and everything. I wasn't sure if you're familiar with his case or how much it intrigued you. I am, yes. So I just wondered, attending Harvard where one in three students are legacy, I was curious what your experience was with what Hogue seemed to be kind of the canary in the coal mine. As much as he's conning that system, that system, how it cons society, that it's a meritocracy, always that intersectionality really intrigued me. And I wondered what you made of it as somebody who was inside that system just a little after Jared Kushner's dad bought his way in. <laughs> yeah, I mean, you know, it's it's an it's an interesting question. You meet you meet all sorts of people there, and I didn't realize that it was that the number was one in three people are legacy, but it makes it makes sense. Um, let's hope that that changes in the future, but um, who knows if it will. But I do I do think that the Hogue case um, really did expose a lot of kind of the the weaknesses in the system, um, and I think that it's important to realize that you you know that that people people are many things um, and that institutions are many things and that you know, going to Harvard or to Princeton um, doesn't guarantee that you're smart and not going there doesn't guarantee that you're not um, that it's it's just a lot of it is legacy right not just legacy students but just the legacy of how the world of education has developed in this country over centuries the funny thing is I think I actually you wanted to go back in time but I think going forward in time I think I learned more about kind of the answer to this question um, when I was immersed in the world of poker for The Biggest Bluff, because I realized a few things. First of all, poker was the closest thing to a meritocracy that I'd ever seen, because you just rise and fall on your own merits, and legacy is going to get you precisely nowhere. It's going to get you jack shit. And if you're good, you're going to be able to play with the best, and if you're not good, you're going to go broke. And the other thing that that I realized was that I was meeting some of the most brilliant people that I met anywhere, um, including Harvard, including Columbia, where I got my PhD, including, you know, all of these rarefied environments. There was just so much talent and brilliance um, and just raw power in the world of poker. And it just makes you realize that, you know, there are brilliant people everywhere and there are idiots everywhere. And you just, nuanced and try to find them find the brilliant people and weed out the idiots and being in any sort of rarefied environment does not guarantee that you're going to be surrounded by brilliance um at all i i raised it because i was very intrigued i listened to you and i have both done an interview with long form and i we had the same interviewer um aaron and 
you answered a question that I thought was really intriguing, which is that you took the leave of absence at Columbia to write Mastermind. It became a big success, and you sounded almost giddy about the idea of not completing it. But your mom, you said, really pushed <laughs> hard for you to complete it. And you said yeah. because it would differentiate you from your peers. And I thought that's a really interesting idea. And I wanted to ask, how, what role has your impeccable credentials played in your career and having that stamp of validation from these institutions? Like what are the pros and cons of that for you? I mean, I think that what my mom meant was was actually a little bit different. And I think she was dead on. What she meant was that I have boobs, I'm female, and we are still living in an incredibly um, male dominated society that's built for men by men um, and where, you can skate by on a lot less if you're male and where people question you if you're female. And what she was trying to tell me was that people are not going to take you seriously because you're a girl. And so get those three letters no matter what, because then you'll be able to take them and you'll be able to throw them in their face. And that's what exactly what has happened. You have no idea how many times people have been like, who are you to opine on this? Who are you to say, you know, X about Y? And I can say, because I have a PhD motherfucker, how about you? And they don't, obviously. Um, oh. And I wouldn't have been able to say that. So yeah, I think it's crucial. I don't think I would have the career I have. Um, and I wouldn't have the the ability to do that, which has been really important because I am a female, or as people in poker like to call me, a girl. Um, a little girl <laughs> and and it's those are powerful credentials to throw in people's faces and you know for for better or for worse um i don't think that that's necessarily right quote unquote but we have to fight within the world we live in not within some ideal society where that wouldn't matter at all in our society unfortunately it does matter so i'm thankful every single day that my mom forced me not forced me but strongly suggested <laughs> that i that i stay at columbia and actually get those three letters appended to my name i just thought it was quite interesting because i was thinking your name seems to get lumped in with malcolm gladwell frequently and I almost never hear Gladwell's academic credentials ever mentioned. And well, he, yeah, I mean, he doesn't have a PhD. No, 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 of course not. He, I'm not, I'm not trying to. I'm just saying he went to the University of Toronto, but it's yeah. not brought up. And I just yeah. wondered, do you think that part of that misogyny with you is every review of your work? It's, it's always there. It's always a big part of a discussion about your career mm -hmm. is your credentials. And it reminded me a bit of that. What's her name? Amy Cooper in the park who called out that bird watcher who was African-American mm -hmm. and every article pointed out that he was a Harvard graduate. Yeah. I mean, I think that when you're underprivileged in whatever way, um, and I'm not trying to equate myself um, to people who are truly underprivileged, but I am female, which is, you know, even though we're not a minority in society, we're treated as one. Um, yeah. I mean, I think it's not fair, but when we do have those credentials, it lends us, it's almost like we have to constantly justify ourselves. We have to jump through more hoops that if I was just, you know, your run of the mill male, I would not have to, I would not have to jump through. I would not have to justify. I would not have to prove that I'm qualified to be talking about this. If you think about like the, the people who write kind of the big idea books, almost none of them have any sort of academic credentials. And a lot of them don't have any 
background in what they're writing about, but mm-hmm. people don't care. Um, but as a female, if you look at the females who are doing it, they almost all are overeducated because we have to be. We have to prove it over and over and over for people to review our books, for people to take us seriously, for people to give us a chance. I wish I never had to tell people that I have these credentials. But it's also, you know, it's it's funny that you say that it's always mentioned because my sister, who's an MD, PhD, and an actual doctor, you know, saves lives every single day, got really upset on my behalf um, when I did some interview on, um, I don't remember what it was, you know, NBC, CBS, one, one of the big shows. Um, I was on one of the morning shows a number of years ago, and I was on with, with someone else, um, and they introduced the other person as doctor, and they just introduced me as Ms., and no one had bothered to realize that I was also doctor, theoretically, Konnikova, and she got very mad. I didn't care. I was like, oh, you know, I'm a writer. She's like, no, but people need to understand that you actually have the knowledge and the knowledge base and the credentials for this, um, and I think she was more mad on my behalf than I was, but I, I see her point. No, I, I, I guess I've always been intrigued also on the flip side, you know, uh, an Orson Welles had a full paid scholarship to Harvard and was doing everything he possibly could to not go there. Gore Vidal bragged about not having a college education. Hemingway occasionally lied about having an education at Princeton, but no college. Faulkner, no college. I don't think Truman Capote had high school. And then they go out and do extraordinary things. It's just interesting to see it from your side, mm-hmm. having that stamp, um, how that would feel. I wonder if they suffered from imposter syndrome by not having the college. And, and, and maybe I guess I could put it to you. Was there ever a feeling of what would I have done if I hadn't gone through academia so successfully? Well, I mean, I think that a lot of the names that you're that – you're, bringing up also it raises a different point they were connected they were wealthy they came from a very rarefied part of society where not going to college was a luxury it was a choice they knew they'd be successful no matter what I grew up poor like actually poor living in a one-bedroom apartment with no money and hand-me-down clothes that wasn't it wasn't a choice for me for me this was the only way out Um, this was the only way to actually succeed not going to college is only a luxury, I think, of rich, connected white boys. Mm. I think you're. I think you're certainly right. Orson Welles had money. Vidal was very connected. Hemingway was upper middle class. Capote was poor. I'm not sure with Faulkner, but yeah, I take your point. I think that's a wonderful point. Um, maybe we can move on to Mastermind. So this book comes out 2013. This is the 125th anniversary of Sherlock Holmes. Um, I I would love to know what it was like to, what drew you to that, um, what researching that was like, and what was the most fun and challenging aspects of bringing that book to fruition? Yeah, you know, going back in time, um, I originally, um, when I was in college, when I was in grad school, I'd started writing this column for Scientific American um, called Literally Psyched which was about the intersection of literature and psychology. I'd, you know, written a few pieces for them and pitched this idea and, you know, it was my it was my background and they gave me a shot at doing it, which was really nice and wonderful and lucky. And um I remember I was writing about mindfulness, um, and this was God, probably around 2010, um, mindfulness was certainly not a buzzword at the time, um, and people didn't really know in popular 
culture what what necessarily it meant um and i needed a way of illustrating it and my mind went to the story that my dad had read to me when i was when i was little which was a sherlock holmes story and it was one specific scene which is when holmes asks watson how many steps lead up to 221b baker street and watson doesn't know and Holmes says, you know, that's the difference between us. You only see, I both see and observe. And I had not revisited the Sherlock Holmes story since I was a little kid. But somehow, you know, that scene had really stayed with me. And so I ended up Googling it to try to find, if I remembered it correctly, to try to kind of find the context. I did. Um, and it ended up being just to me the perfect illustration of mindfulness um, and this this difference between seeing and seeing and observing. And so I wrote the column um, and got the best feedback I'd ever gotten and also just loved rereading that Holmes story. And so I started rereading all of Sherlock Holmes and I just had this epiphany. I was like, oh my God, this is a gold mine. This is a psychological gold mine. There's so much here. And so I start, it started out as a series of columns um, that then became a book. And there was, I mean, I didn't know what I was doing. Let's, let's just be perfectly clear. Um, I was a complete baby when it came to writing. And I I was lucky that I was able to sell the book based on these columns. But then I you know, I didn't really know how to write a book. Um, and so everything was a challenge. You know, I, and I, I wanted to avoid just, you know, taking all these columns and pasting them together and saying, okay, here's my book. Um, and so it was just, it was a constant learning process to figure out, okay, well, what does it take to actually write hundreds of pages because even though I'd studied writing in college you know the longest you write short stories you don't write anything long um and so it was a very it was it was a beast <laughs> and it was really hard um for me to to figure out how to do it and you know in in retrospect there are lots of things I would have done differently I mean I don't even I have not reread Mastermind in years because um I find you know I I, I don't want to say I find a lot of it cringeworthy because I that that would be putting it a little bit strongly. But I can see so many things that I want to change in how I structured it and how I you know how I did different things. Um, but you know you you learn right. You grow as a writer. I'm so grateful that none of my college writing is available on the internet. That I that I went to school and studied writing before everything was digitized. So you have to probably go to you know the the Harvard libraries and take out old magazines to find some of my <laughs> some of my um, college efforts at fiction um, and I'm, I'm eternally grateful for that because I think it saved me from myself. <laughs> I, I've heard in previous interviews you talk about your fascination with the connections between psychology and writing and mm -hmm. and writers that are great psychologists that, that it's inescapable and I, I wonder I've not heard you enumerate which writers stand out for you for their psychological acumen. Oh, I mean, I think that all the great fiction writers are brilliant psychologists. It's just, it's inevitable because 
if you're a fiction writer, then, and if if you're good, if you're if you kind of stand the test of time, you're an observer of human nature. You're it's about people. It's about their stories. It's about their motivations. It's about what makes them who they are, and that's psychology. And so I think that all of the greats are brilliant psychologists. I first had the insight, um, but this also comes from who I am and from my own background and from kind of the books that I read at a pivotal age, which were all Russian. Um, I first had kind of this thought when I was reading writers like Dostoevsky and Bulgakov, who were kind of some of the early great writers that I read in Russian, um, because that's what my parents gave me, um, because that was kind of the the literature that they knew. Nabokov, you know, they these are people who are absolutely brilliant psychologists. But I think that, you know, if you just, if you think about anyone who's really survived, you know, the, the Jane Austens and the George Eliots and, and yeah, we've talked and the Faulkners and the Hemingways and the Fitzgeralds, you see just, you see a treasure trove of insight into humanity and they're not clinical psychologists and they're not experimental psychologists. So they don't have to build careful studies. They can just write what they see. They can write their careful observations. And time and time again, you find that experimental psychology in, tw- in the 21st century will design this study and have this insight. Oh, you know, did you know that people blah, blah, blah? I'm like, well, yes, you know, um, <laughs> if you if you actually had read, you know, these novels, you'd see that this was something we've known about human nature forever. Don't get me wrong. I think it's important to do the studies and to kind of get get all of that stuff. But I think that honestly, you could probably get by pretty well as a psychologist if you just read great novels and saw what they said about humans and then figured out ways of testing it. It's interesting. I had one of the first guests I had on was a neuroscientist and we were talking about chronic traumatic encephalopathy, but he raised a point like an odd tributary that one of the, the real deficits in his pursuits at NYU is that he didn't have fiction writers using their imagination to explore the frontiers so that scientists could then go and, and follow like behind an ambulance to test the, to test it. But he just said scientists just don't have the imagination that fiction writers have. And unfortunately, most fiction writers are not so scientific in their, in their interests. I thought that was a very intriguing point because true, most writers, great fiction writers, their parents are always lawyers and doctors for the most part. Yeah, I mean, I, I think that I think that we are doing our children, our education system, a big disservice in just this absolute focus on nonfiction that I've seen happening over the last few decades, where people think that fiction is frivolous, and so many people take pride, you know, so many entrepreneurs and so many people, you know, so many leaders of society take pride in not reading fiction. They're like, oh, no, you know, I don't have time for fiction. I just read, you know, nonfiction, which really teaches you something. And I just want to shake them and say, you want to really learn something? Read fiction, read poetry. That's kind of, that's what's going to fuel your imagination, fuel your brain, fuel your soul. And there are studies on it. You want studies? I'll show you studies. Reading fiction makes you more empathetic, makes you understand people more. It's going to make you a better business person because you're going to be able to understand people better. And so I, I just, 
I, I wish that everyone would stop thinking that it's frivolous. I think it's, it's a necessity. I mean, it's something that makes you human. One of my favorite pieces of nonfiction is Joseph Brodsky's Nobel acceptance speech um, when he won the Nobel Prize in Literature. Um, I'm not going to go into it in detail here. I urge everyone to read it for themselves because I think it's a minor masterpiece. But one of the things he says is that the Soviet Union was able to attain the kinds of control that it did over its people because it was a nation of mostly uneducated people who didn't read. And that you know, reading and books, fiction is what he had in mind. That was the antidote to autocracy um, because that forces critical thinking. It forces you to actually be an individual, to think critically, to think for yourself. It develops all of these skills that we think are developed by you know nonfiction and all of this technical stuff. No, um, to actually be a deep thinker and to figure out what who you are think you need you need to read you need fiction you need literature um and to me that's just you know it's a it's such a powerful thing yeah it's a, I, I have not read it but i'm certainly going to look that up I, I am a fan of brodsky um but i wanted to go back a little bit to what you were saying earlier in terms of uh, writers and psychology and when you talked about nabokov and dostoevsky one of the things that strikes me with with your poker book, obviously, is that Dostoevsky was this compulsive gambler. <laughs> he was indeed. <laughs> I think Nabokov's uncle or great uncle was actually one of the people talking to the czar about executing Dostoevsky. He bragged about it to students at Cornell. Um, but you have such different psychologies with the two of these people. Like Nabokov seems like the consummate dealer at a casino, delighting in people losing their lives, whereas Dostoevsky is at the other end of, of the extreme mm -hmm. spectrum. Um, it strikes me that I wonder, is it true, like in casinos, you're catching cheats by having great cheats observe them? right? Like the people with the binoculars up above or in the crow's nests, all of the best people at catching cheats are ex-cheats. Um, the best people for security for banks are ex-bank robbers. The catch-me-if-you-can guy works mm -hmm. with the FBI about ca catching frauds and that sort of thing. Uh, same with counterfeit money. Why is it that it's cheats who understand honesty so much better than honest people? Well, I think that it's one of these, it's not it takes one to know one, but rather, how does your mind work? And if you're someone who's never even contemplated it, it's oftentimes it's hard to even consider the ways that people can cheat to see the loopholes, because that's not what you spend your time thinking about. Um, and if you're someone who who does spend time thinking about it, then you've seen these other kind of all of these loopholes and entry points. And the other thing I'll say is, you know, even if you're someone who's very, very curious about it, um, so, you know, I obviously very interested in how con artists work and operate and learned a lot. And some people accused me of writing a playbook for con artists, which, I mean, I guess is kind of flattering, but I really hope that nobody uses, <laughs> uses the confidence game in that way because that's horrifying. But I... Still, I don't think that I would make 
a part- I wouldn't make a good con artist and because understanding it intellectually is one thing and actually executing it is another. And while I actually have done, I think I can do some of the other stuff. So I've done consulting for banks um, and for other institutions about fraud um, and about cybersecurity and about kind of how con artists operate and the types of things they're likely to exploit. Um, because I spent so much time with them and I tried to get into their minds and get into their brains and figure out what are they looking at? What are they looking for? But unless you have that curiosity for some reason, so I think that you know some journalists are probably going to be pretty good at a lot of these things because they've understood it and really spent time in those worlds. But for most, for the lay person, why in the world would you spend time thinking about that? You know, it's not your profession. It's not something that you're ever going to use. And so you just, you don't even consider that it's a possibility. I, it's really funny that you, that you asked this question right now. I'm not going to, you know, name any names or anything, but I, um, to, to a totally different domain, um, I was recently reading, uh, a memoir and I thought that it was, you know, very kind of a very compelling story. And someone told me, you know, I know this person and a lot of it isn't true. And I was just, it never even crossed my mind because I, I feel like, you know, as a journalist, as someone who kind of chronicles thing and who really values fact, I was like, who, who in the world would lie about that? Why would you lie? And yet journalists have lied, right? People have made up, memoirs and have made up experiences and have made up things in their life. But to my mind, because that's not something that I've ever really considered, it just it doesn't even cross my mind to ask. And it's also because I was reading this for pleasure and I wasn't, you know, if I was reporting this story, believe me, I would have fact checked. But when you just read it, you you assume you take it on trust. And I think that that's actually kind of the default human condition. And by I think, um, let me caveat this, you know, throw my PhD out there. Um, there are studies on this. There's actually a lot of research that trust is the default human condition um, and that we're wired to trust and that distrust is secondary. And so if, you, if it's not an area where you're particularly, where you're in any way motivated to, to look for the loopholes, why would you? <laughs> right. Well, I, I, next question I have if, <laughs> is literary con artists. Um, I'm <laughs> curious about their impact because I have quite a list of them yeah. um, because they do play with this, uh, this feature of you can't, I, I think it was John Berger who said with Van Gogh, if, if you hold up Wheatfields with Crows and you let somebody look at it and take it in and and assess what its meaning is. And then the next page, it says, this was the last painting that he ever did. How has the painting changed in your mind? It overwhelmingly changes in your mind. And many of these literary con artists are such masters at their backstories with J.T. Leroy mm-hmm. uh, being the the transgender prostitute Dan Mallory with his double PhD at Oxford, <laughs> complete lie. James Frey, Jonah Lehrer, and then Janet Cook with the Pulitzer Prize mm-hmm. for Jimmy's World. I just I was curious, like, what do you, after, especially after what you just said about defaulting to trust, um, 
what do you make about the impact yeah. that these writers have had on people? And you know, even even somebody like James Frey, like Oprah initially said, does it matter if it's true? Like, didn't it, wasn't the story a compelling story sort of thing? And then quickly changed after that was not a popular opinion. Yeah, I mean, I, I obviously have a big problem with it because it's my profession. And, you know, I don't want that represented in in the popular light that way you know i actually let's let's talk about someone who actually very specifically affected my career jonah lair because he wrote about popular psychology and he's a little bit older than i am and he was coming up right before me and then you know this happens right and for people not familiar um all of these all of the names that you've named are big literary fraud. Um, but Jonah Lehrer, it wasn't memoir. He was writing actual straight nonfiction and um, playing fast and loose with actual facts, fabricating things that never happened, fabricating quotes. I get very, I also get very mad when it's misrepresented and people are like, oh, well, he just, you know, he made up some Bob Dylan quotes. What's the big deal? No, that was just what got him caught. It, it's actually, it was much right. deeper and went in all of his books and he would, you know, he would basically just misrepresent things and make huge, not errors because errors would have been, um, something that he did unknowingly but he would basically to make a good story he would massage the truth to have a good compelling story and so i was penalized for that because here i was trying to write about psychology and people told me you know we we really can't be publishing any psych stories right now especially not social psych because it's all bullshit and everyone was saying oh this is all bullshit and I was trying to say well no you know I'm getting my PhD you know I'm I'm actually studying this it's not bullshit like just give me a chance and they and it was really really hard and I had to fight against that and it was just personally he actually made it much more difficult made my life much more difficult but he also I think did me a favor in the sense that I became so anal about being conscientious with every single fact and reference and just everything that I think that uh, I think that I, I needed to. It's kind of what we were talking about earlier, you know, get that PhD, have have the, have the stuff to back you up. But it made me much more thorough um, in, in my own writing. And eventually, obviously, I was able to write about psychology and, you know, people he faded away. But it's it's also it's. I, I wonder how rampant it is because the, these cases that you've enumerated only became known and they were only caught because they were ridiculously successful. I mean, as you say, Janet Cook, she won a Pulitzer Prize for for actually a story that she made up. And it's crazy. And you actually it makes you it makes you wonder how many people just play a little fast and loose and how many just go undetected because nobody bothers to fact check because they never got big enough. Um, that worries me because I want to be able to trust what I write when it says nonfiction on it. If James Fry had written a book that was a novel, you know, more power to him. Great. Wonderful. But part of the success was the fact that he said it, it was true, that it was memoir. And so you know, if if you try to pass something on as truth, then it damn well better be. Well, it's also interesting thinking about the new journalism. Mm. I mean, the only one I can think of that used a recorder 
was Hunter S. Thompson. All yeah. the rest boasted about their incredible recall. And I guess you go back before that to George Orwell or um, Richard Ben Kramer, uh, Gay Talese. All of these people were, or Truman Capote for that matter, within Cold Blood. It's all this incredible memory. I don't need to record it really or take notes. And it's sort of like, well, uh, yeah. uh, <laughs> sounds well, like the ability to, to craft a lot of stuff out of whole cloth. Yeah, and let me, you know, since since you're bringing up kind of a, a lot of these names, let me bring up another name, Joseph Mitchell, who was sure. a New Yorker writer. And I was actually, I was really, I felt really betrayed when that book came out, who, um, that basically said, you know, I would admire these pieces and figure out, wow, how did he find these people? How did he find these stories? He didn't. They were composite characters. And he, you know, he recreated events and rearranged timelines and made things into the perfect story. And back then, it was actually, like, I, I guess it was accepted and it was okay and people kind of knew he was doing it. But as you say, Hunter S. Thompson used a tape recorder. So it's not like people didn't realize even back then that, you know, there was a difference between composite and invented characters and actual nonfiction. And it kind of broke my heart to learn that Joseph Mitchell, oh, here's how you do it. You actually just make shit up. <laughs> no, it's, it's so true. Um, I was reading a book that made me think a little bit about yours, The Confidence Game. Um, in and of itself was a, a stage show in New York. I don't know if you saw it by the magician Derek Delgadio. Just wrote a book that I think is a bestseller, A Moral Man. And he talked about the one-way street between magic and crime, which is something that you get into quite a bit in The Confidence Game. A fascinating intersection. Mm -hmm. um, but one thing I thought was intriguing I wanted to put to you is I'm trying to understand the psychology with audiences behind, like the difference between magic and art is, mm -hmm. I think in the movie, The Prestige, it said, um, never give away the secret because the secret of a trick will always disappoint people. And, it, and it, will, it will reduce the magician to just a charlatan, a fraud, a con artist, and all that kind of thing. It's what you use the secret for that is important. But I thought, isn't it the exact opposite with an artist? The moment we know the letters of Van Gogh, the art transforms. Or, or you can go in the other direction with when we know what an awful person Woody Allen is, or Celine being an anti-Semite, or Caravaggio was a murderer, this informs the artwork in a way that's irrevoc irrevocably transforms it. I wonder why is it when you expose the secret in magic, it reduces it to something tawdry, but with art, it elevates it somehow. So I'm actually going to take issue with the premise of the question. Okay. I don't think that um, revealing the trick in magic makes it tawdry. I actually think it's amazing. I think that people who, who believe that you can't reveal your secrets, I actually think that's absolutely wrong and backwards. Because if you know how it's done, the magician can still fool you. And it actually shows you that there are so many levels of mastery or he can do it in a different way. Or, you know, she can actually, you know, take your attention and command it, even though you theoretically know how it's done and you can't do it yourself. And it makes, at least me, it makes me appreciate the artistry of it all the more. It's not, and of course I'm talking about great 
magicians because they're artists, not people who are, you know, your your party magician who just learned how to do this last week. By the way, some party magicians are great artists too. So <laughs> so don't get me wrong. I'm not, not trying to denigrate all party magicians here. But I mean, I'm talking about a certain craft, right? A certain level of craft. And I think at that point you can you can know how it's done. Does it make it any less impressive? Um, you know, if you're watching David Copperfield, if you actually know kind of the the mechanics of how to get out of restraints, no, you're never going to be able to do it. You're never going to have the balls to do it. You're never going to be able to have the stamina and be able to take years and years that it takes to perfect a trick like that to do it. Am I less impressed? No, I'm more impressed because I think, holy shit, this guy does it. Penn and Teller, if I know how they do some of their tricks, that and they actually oftentimes will re- reveal how they did something and then do it in a very different way next time. That's amazing. They're constantly, you know, they're constantly challenging the challenging themselves to innovate and to go beyond what people think the trick is and the expectation. And so I just think that it's true of everything, um, of any great art, which includes magic, that kind of revealing this, revealing the the secret behind it makes it more powerful. Well, I, I, I agree with you. Like, I think you and I are, are people with I mean, it's, you like to go behind the story and and how the thing was conceived, and and that's certainly I like to comp- to comprehensively enjoy. I mean, like Nabokov made that huge point in a lot of his wonderful two series he did uh, lectures on literature. Mm-hmm. That if you don't know Joyce's Dublin from the time he's writing about it, you cannot appreciate Ulysses. It's, Correct. it's a pointless <laughs> exercise. And he said that about almost every work. If you can't go back into Chekhov's Russia. What do you do? You're just going in blind into a swimming pool trying to pick up bricks, sort of thing. And, but I think we are on the outlier of this. Can we agree that most people, knowing how a trick is done, and I mean in the literature of magic, it's an unbelievably secretive society? Oh, it is. So I think that magicians are strong believers in what you said for the most part. And that most of them, it's, it's this orthodoxy that revealing the trick ruins it. I just do not think it's true. I think that the audience, I've learned over time to never look down on your audience and to always expect the best of them because they will rise up to the occasion time and time again. And I actually think that the lay person, someone who has no interest in going behind the scenes, I am willing to bet that if magicians took a gamble on it and someone did a show where every single trick was explained, they could have a huge hit and a huge success because I actually think the audience would love it. I just wonder if the parallel here is kind of like the vaccine issue in this country (laughs) where it's not about as most people intuitively thought. It's about beliefs. And I think a lot of people go into to, to believe that there's something supernatural or extraordinary, even though the magician is the honest con man saying, I am going to fool you and then find yeah. a way to fool you. Oh, absolutely. Um, absolutely. So uh, I wondered with, with moving on to the, the biggest bluff, um, I mean, this participatory journalism, <laughs> I'm thinking George Plimpton, who did it a number of times, um, I can't think of anybody who jumped into this as a writer who succeeded, who made $230,000 in poker tournaments and captures a major poker title. What happens if you're a terrible poker player? 
The book would have still worked. Um, oh. the, the project was conceived so that um, it didn't matter if I succeeded or failed. It was all about the journey. And I think that one of the big points um, of the book is that the outcome doesn't matter, that it's all about the process. And if you can perfect your process, if you can keep working on that, if you can keep honing that, that's your goal. It would have been a very different book, um, obviously, had I ended up being a shitty poker player that was always a possibility um and you know you you write the story that happens um i think it was very lucky for me that i ended up having a success story because people like those i think it made probably the book more appealing to more people than it otherwise would have been but like i said it just would have been a very different book had i realized you know i suck at this no matter how hard i work um that would have been a very different lesson but a lesson all the same but i mean i mean i'm trying to think of another example of a writer where this works like george oh. Clinton tried everything and was terrible yes. at everything and that's <laughs> a funny thing right yeah i mean as far as i know i am a case study of one for this particular thing. <laughs> um, and, and and it's not that other writers haven't played poker, but no one's actually done this because right. there are people who wrote about playing poker, but they played for many years. They were lifelong players. Um, they didn't start from literally zero. Um, so, and, there, and then there are people like, you know, Colson Whitehead who goes in to play the World Series, but it's also a very different type of journey. Yeah, and, and, you know, I thought with what you were saying earlier with being interested in psychology and of writers and that sort of thing, um, that it was a, a parallel that jumped out at me because Simon & Schuster asked me to do a book on chess, and I, I did not have a comprehensive background in it, so I really had to learn about it while going to the World Chess Championships. Um, is your story reminded me a little bit of the of Judith Polgar and the Polgar mm -hmm. sisters, yep. whose father was an educational psychologist from my mother's native Hungary, and he conducted an experiment to prove that geniuses are made and not born, and and all three of his daughters proved to be total prodigies, and Judith more more than any other woman who's ever played chess. But I thought the other parallel not just with you both succeeding, is that they're both such unbelievably male-dominated worlds, which is mm -hmm. precisely why Judith's father chose chess to, to prove that his daughters could excel. Yeah, I mean, I think there are lots of parallels. I also find it very interesting. Um, the Polgar sisters are actually one of my favorite examples to refute the 10,000-hour rule, because even though they all succeeded, they were all vastly different in their skills. Yes. And so you could see the talent, the natural talent, and the and the passion for it that carried, that made Judith Judith, right? Yeah. <laughs> so they all had the same training, and yet their endpoints and how long it took them to achieve certain points were completely different. And so you can, yes, I do think that um, you can, anyone can be taught to do anything, but genius cannot and greatness cannot. So there was only one of them became Judith, right? <laughs> the other yeah, two did no, not. No, um, no, and no. so, I, and I think that's incredibly important. And so, you know, when I was starting out with The Biggest Bluff, I had no idea. I had never played poker before. I didn't have a deck of cards growing up. I mean, I've told this story before, but it's true. You know, I did not know how many cards were in a deck. Like, that was my starting point. Yeah. And... I had no idea if I would have any aptitude for it or if I would like it. And I stress that second point too, because I do firmly believe that we 
excel and become better at things that we actually have an interest in and are curious about. If I had ended up hating everything about poker, I never would have learned as well as I did because it would have just been, it would have been hard work. And this was hard work, but hard work that I enjoyed. Not all hard work is created equal. And so I think that I was fortunate to have chosen something where I ended up having a mentor who taught me to see it with his eyes and if this is a game that he loves and so i i love he passed that love on to me which i think helped learn the learning process and you know i think i there's probably something about my brain and my genetic makeup that made me um better able to kind of take in some of that learning and that could have been true and it could have not been true and that's something that i had to try it in order to find out that wasn't something that I could know ahead of time. Well, and, and also in poker, it's interesting to me, one of the conundrums with chess that I found covering it is it was the most status obsessed culture that I've ever encountered in my life. Everybody who would meet you talk about um, credentials being like the first item that's discussed. They'd all walk up to you and say, hi, I am a grandmaster as if they're like a member of like the Knights of Malta kind of thing. And it's like there's 1,600 grandmasters in the world. It's like it's a good achievement, but I don't know if I was 580th in, at tennis, I would approach people and say, do you know that I'm internationally ranked? So, But I, I thought what's also interesting in chess is almost nobody has a college education. So mm -hmm. the, the being good at chess is sort of who you are in the world. But Bobby Fischer was once said that he was a chess genius and took issue with it and said, I am a genius who plays chess. I'm not a chess genius. But with you, you mentioned that poker has helped you write and writing has helped you play poker. With chess, it's not clear what else you're good at because you're good at chess. Magnus Carlsen is not writing, uh, the, he's not the, the Tolstoy of literature or anything in any other area. But you were, you were demonstrating, I wondered, are there other areas that you could jump into like poker? I have no idea. And, you know, to be perfectly honest, I it's not something that I'm particularly that I that I think I'll I'll be testing. You know, I, I I'm not George Plimpton. I am not planning to suddenly become a gonzo journalist and have all of my future writing projects be about me jumping into different areas of life, you know, there was a really specific reason why I chose to pursue poker. And it wasn't because I wanted to learn poker. It was because I thought that it would help me understand kind of the nature of luck and to be able to um, fight through the illusion of control better, make better decisions, become kind of a more thoughtful version of myself. Um, so it was, a, it was a means to an end. And I really enjoyed the process of mastering something new as an adult. But in so far as, you know, do I think that I'm going to be able to jump into something else and be good at it? I think skills are only as portable as you make them. I think that a lot of great poker players aren't very good at anything else because they've never had the metacognitive awareness to or the desire to kind of try to figure out, okay, what am I doing? How do I break this down? What is it about my mind? You know, what is this teaching me? How do I apply it elsewhere? They just don't do that. Someone like Eric Seidel does do that, I think, which makes him much better at poker and at life. But a lot of people don't. And I think that's true in any discipline. Um, I don't think it's actually 
something that's unique in chess, you know, that Magnus Carlsen doesn't do anything else. Most great poker players don't do anything else either. I think my advantage was that I came into it actually with, as a journalist, with metacognitive awareness, knowing that I was doing this for something else. And I think that's one of the reasons that I was able to take those skills and leverage them in other areas. So I think it's more of an approach and a mental attitude than anything else. Mm, oh, it's a great answer. And I, I think I just raised it because everything else compares itself to chess. And yet it's not clear what chess makes you good at mm -hmm. other than chess, which is yep. <laughs> kind of funny. <laughs> Um, I, I know you have to go. I want to thank you so much for your time. This was a pleasure. Thank you. Thank you. It was an absolute pleasure. All right. Thank you for listening to this week's episode of Tourist Information. The producers for this show are George Alarcón Suebi and myself, Bryn Jonathan Butler. Thanks for listening. <laughs>